One of the most often asked questions in the gospel regarding Jesus, and the one that is probably the most important, is simply, who is this man? You recall that Jesus in Mark 4 calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee as the disciples and Jesus were in a tiny boat. And they were being tossed around like a toothpick in a whirlpool. And fearing for their lives, the disciples awakened Jesus who was asleep in the back of the boat. And he calmly rebuked the wind. And the sea was reduced to a peaceful hush. And the disciples were awestruck. And we're told that they murmured among themselves, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Later, when Jesus healed the body and forgave the sins of a paralytic who had been brought to him, the scribes and Pharisees huddled among themselves asking the question, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then finally, just a week before Jesus would be hung on a cross and his life would come to an end, as he rode meekly and majestically into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey on what we call today Palm Sunday, the reaction of the multitude was typical of what had already occurred on numerous occasions. Because we're told in Mark 21.10 that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? It's a great question. And I think it's among the most important questions that anyone can ask. And so, how would you, if that question were asked of you, how would you answer it? Well, if you were to ask the prevailing religious crowd in our community, and they knew their theology, which sadly most do not, they would tell you that Jesus was the firstborn child of Elohim, the product of a physical union between Father God and the Virgin Mary, and that for a time, God and Mary actually were husband and wife. They had sexual relations, and as a married couple, they conceived Jesus. Muslims, on the other hand, would answer by saying that Jesus is a prophet of God, like Abraham, Moses, or Isaiah. But he was not God himself. In fact, he was not even the most important or greatest of the prophets. That distinction, according to Muslims, was given to Muhammad, who lived 500 years after Jesus. What's more, the Muslims would tell you that Jesus didn't really die on a cross. He was rescued by God and carried to a safe place in the heavens. And because there was no death, there was no atonement for sin, and since there was no death, there was no resurrection. Jehovah Witnesses, if you were to ask them, would tell you that prior to his coming to this earth, Jesus was Michael the archangel, and as such, he's only a creature, the first product of Jehovah God's creative work. And when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he was divested of his spiritual angelic nature and became wholly and exclusively a man. In other words, according to them, Jesus is in God. They would never sing that great hymn by Charles Wesley that we sing at Christmas, which says in part, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, 
Pleased is God with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. And then just to round out our discussion this morning, there's the theological liberal who believes that because of the exceptional virtue and humility and spiritual sensitivity, God adopted Jesus to be his son. He endowed him with miraculous powers and through him proclaimed the wonderful message of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of men. Now, friend, that's just a smattering of the many beliefs that people have regarding the question, who is Jesus Christ? I want to suggest this morning that the answer to that question more than anything else is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, philosophy, or movement. We as Christians are known distinctively for what we believe about Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest this morning that if you get that wrong, you are hopelessly doomed. Because the answer to that question provides us with a comprehensive view of the origin, meaning, and ultimate purpose of the entire universe. And I believe that that question is answered no more completely or fully than in a paragraph of Scripture that I want us to look at found in Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Colossians 1, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 20. And because of what Paul says regarding Jesus Christ, Paul insists In fact, Paul demands, he requires, that Jesus Christ, because he is God, is to be given preeminence in everything. In fact, I want you to look at verse 18 closely. It says, and he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now notice then the purpose clause. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, maybe circle that little word, so that. It's not one word, it's two. Circle that little phrase, so that. This is the purpose clause. So that in everything, he, that is Jesus, might have the supremacy. Let your eyes focus for a moment on that statement. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. When Paul says everything, or all, as in some of your translations that might render it, he means everything. Jesus Christ is to have supremacy or preeminence in everything in your life and mine. In fact, that word all or every or each occurs eight times in this short paragraph. And what Paul is doing in this letter is fundamentally and essentially talking about the centrality, the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ in all things. And Jesus Christ is to captivate 
and be the focus of our attention. And I must tell you that what is so disheartening today in our society and culture is the attitude that so many people have towards Jesus Christ. The indifference that they have. In fact, indifference is probably being too charitable. For many, Jesus Christ is simply a cuss word. And you've heard it, no doubt. Miss a golf cop, golf shot, somebody cuts you off in traffic, and what's the first thing that comes out of their mouth? Jesus Christ! How disheartening. It's an exclamation of frustration and anger, and at times something far worse. And to me, it, it is just beyond comprehension that people could take that most powerful, beautiful, and loving name in all the universe and use it as a curse word. And they show just an absolute, utter contempt for Jesus Christ. Friend, my goal, my aim, my purpose this morning is to let this passage, and it's not a complicated one, but to let this passage simply explain to you who Jesus Christ is and why as the risen and living Christ, He is deserving of our absolute and unchallenged preeminence in all things. And when I say everything in all things, I mean everything. Everything in your life, in your work, in your love, in your marriage, in the use of your money, in your business, in the halls of Congress, and city halls, in the halls of universities, in elementary schools, and most of all in the hearts of people, Jesus Christ is to be supreme. And as you break down this paragraph, beginning again in verse 15 down through verse 20, you find ten reasons why Jesus Christ must be acknowledged as preeminent in everything. And the first is found in verse 15. It's because Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. See verse 15, he says the Son, again he's talking about Jesus, he says the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now there are scores of passages in the Bible that make clear that God is by nature invisible. And it's not that he's simply not seen, it's that God the Father cannot be seen. If you're a stickler for verses, let me mention four. John 1.18, Romans 1.20, 1 Timothy 6.16, and Hebrews 11.27. If I went too fast, watch the YouTube. And so the idea that God the Father and the Son have a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man is absolute heresy. God is invisible. And Paul says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so the natural question arises is, if God is invisible, what hope is there for knowing and believing in God? And the answer is Jesus. If you want to know 
What God is like, just look at Jesus. Philip in the upper room in John 14 felt the urgency to say God. And he said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for me. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, having seen Jesus is to have seen God. He is the spitten image of God. The Son's images, the Father, in terms of His moral character, His will, and His attributes of deity. And together with the Holy Spirit, they share a common divine nature, glory, and purpose. Friend, Jesus Christ is everything the Father is except for being the Father. Every virtue, power, and glory, as well as the fullness of deity, reside in the Son as in the Father. Second, Paul says that Jesus Christ must be preeminent in all things because he is the firstborn over all creation. He says that again in verse 15. I want you to listen very, very carefully because it's here that Jehovah Witnesses, well, they're just screwed up royally, okay? In the words of Martin Luther, they're a bunch of blockheads, okay? Remember, Martin Luther said that, not me. You had to have been here two Sundays ago, okay, to appreciate that. But what does that phrase mean? And I think part of the challenge is how it's been translated in some of our text. And I don't want to get too technical here, but that phrase, firstborn over all creation, can be translated one of two ways. It can be translated the firstborn of all creation, or as it's translated in the New International Version, the firstborn over all creation. Now, either translation is grammatically possible, but there's a world of difference between them. And the question is simply this. Is Jesus of creation in the sense that he belongs to it as its initial and original member? Or is Jesus over creation in the sense that he's its source and the sovereign Lord and maker of it. Well, friend, I believe the latter is the proper translation. Jesus Christ is the firstborn over all creation. And there's several reasons for that. First of all, I want you to observe how in verse 16 it begins. He says, for by him all things were created. Now that little word for indicates that what follows in verse 16 supports or explains what is preceded in verse 15. In other words, Paul is saying here is how Jesus is the firstborn of or over creation. And it's by virtue of the fact that he created all things. Second, to say that Jesus is himself a creature, creature is inconsistent with what he says in verse 17, where he says he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
Third, to say that Jesus is a creature would be inconsistent with what Paul clearly says about him elsewhere, primarily in Philippians 2, verse 6. Fourth, to say that Jesus is a creature would be inconsistent with what John clearly said in John 1, 3, where he says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then finally, that word firstborn, and this is really the key, that word firstborn does not necessarily mean first in a sequence of time. It can also mean first in the sense of rank or supreme in dignity. And Paul's point is that by virtue of being the image of God, Jesus Christ has preeminence and exercises sovereignty over everything that exists. In other words, what he's saying here is that Jesus Christ is utterly unique. He's been distinguished from all of creation because he is both eternally prior to it and supreme over it in the sense that he is the creator of it. And so Jesus Christ is to be given preeminence because first, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. And third, because it says in verse 16 that he created all things. And I want you to just focus on verse 16 for a moment. I want you to notice how remarkably specific Paul is about the extent of Christ's creative input. It encompasses everything. I mean, everything. See verse 16, he says, For in him all things were created. Now this is where it gets all inclusive. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And what Paul is saying here is it doesn't matter whether we're talking about the massive galaxies of our universe that are billions of light years away or that dust ball that is underneath your bed. You know what? God created it all. And by the way, we all have dust balls in our home, right? Every so often, Connie and I pull out our dressers and we get under the beds. And it is amazing how much dust accumulates there. You know what? God created those dust balls. It's not because we're sloppy housekeepers. It's just part of God's plan. Friend, the all things includes what you can see and what you can't see. The things that are visible as well as the things that are intangible. Fourth, he says Jesus Christ is to be given preeminence in all things because everything he created exists for him. See the end of verse 16? He says that all things have been created through him and they have been created for him. Jesus Christ is both the architect and the artisan. 
And an artisan is simply the skilled craftsman that puts things together. He says, well, the aim for which all things were created. Friend, whatever there is in the universe, he is the reason for it. He is the goal, the aim, the intent, the point, the purpose, the end, the terminus, the consummation, and the culmination of every molecule that moves in the universe. Some of you may need to buckle up for this one, okay? Put on your safety belts. We're going to move into a little bit of turbulent air, okay? And I don't want anybody thrown out of their seats. So like a good captain of an of a airplane, I'm going to warn you, we're moving into some turbulent air, okay? I want to break it to you gently. But guess what? The world does not revolve around you. I know that might be earth-shattering for some of you, and you can't handle it. But guess what? This created world revolves around God. God did not create the world so he could have you, but so that you could have him. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Connie and I, in the 48 years that we have been together, have never designed and built a house. And that's not to suggest that we've not lived in a house, because we have. But we've always bought something that had already been built. But let's imagine for a moment that we wanted to build our dream house. Well, the first thing we would do is hire an architect who would draw up the blueprints. And we would formulate the plan and list all of the specifications that we want in that house. There would be the big kitchen and walk-in closet for Connie. There would be the three-car garage that I desperately want so that I can buy that sports car. There would be that three-tiered media room, a big dining room, a huge padded playroom for the grandkids. And once those plans were in place, we would hire a builder or an artisan. And that person would put brick to mortar and nail to wood, and that house would be built. And it would serve the purpose for which it was built. And we would move in, and we would enjoy it, and we would occupy it. And would have a lot of specific features that we would enjoy. The special den, the hot tub on the deck. But you know what? Here's the point. Jesus Christ is all of these in relation to the whole of the universe. He is the architect in that he conceived the very idea of the universe and all that is in it. He is the artisan in that he actually created or made it all. And he is the aim of it all. He constructed and created it for him. Let me suggest a fifth thing. And that's found in verse 17. And that is Jesus Christ is to be given preeminence in your life and mine in all things because he existed before all things. 
See verse 17? It says, He is before all things. Simply put, He is eternal. He has always been. He always is. He always will be. And frankly, I have a hard time wrapping my peanut of a brain around that. I cannot fathom or con- have, a, have a full understanding of what it means that Jesus Christ and God has always existed in eternity past. But Paul tells us that he has. Number six, Jesus is to be given preeminence in all things because in him all things hold together. He is the glue that holds all things together. See it, verse 17, it says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now that statement struck a responsive chord with the Colossi Christians. The city of Colossi was in what was called the Lycus Valley in modern-day Turkey. It was about 150 miles inland from Ephesus, and it was an area where there were repeated earthquakes. We know from history that sometime around A.D. 60 or 61, there was a major devastating earthquake that hit the city of Colossae. So much so that much of the city was destroyed and numerous lives were lost. Most scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter during his Roman imprisonment around 60 A.D. And so either just before or very soon thereafter, when these Christians received this letter where the entire city of Colossae and its inhabitants had been seriously shaken because of that earthquake, Paul makes this statement. Again, to people who just experienced a devastating earthquake, he says, folks, don't forget, Jesus Christ holds all things together. Some translations render this, in him all things cohere. Some of your translations may render it, in him all things subsist. And the point that Paul is making is that whatever coherence or unity the universe displays is due to the continual exertion of divine power by the Son of God. What Paul is saying here, is that the risen Christ sustains and upholds all things. And I love the fact that that Jesus Christ didn't create this universe and then decide to skip town and sort of wash himself of the whole mess that we've gotten ourselves into and say, folks, I'm out of here. Paul is saying from the moment of its inception until now and for As long as he wills, Jesus Christ sustains all things. He guides all things. And he's in control. Every heartbeat, every flutter of an eyelid, every rustle of every blade of grass, every breath you breathe is sustained by the Son of God. And as Connie and I go to see her mother, one of the things that we take comfort in is knowing that she is going to die on time. She's not going to live one day longer nor one day less 
than what God has ordained for her. And whether we get to see her in this life again, we know that we will see her in heaven. And friend, if there is a shaking in this world, it's because the Lord has willed it. Seventh, Paul says that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. I like that. Because as I was reflecting on this, I realized that through the years, and it's hard for me to grasp this, but more than four decades of being a pastor, I've ministered and preached in a lot of different churches. Presbyterian, Methodist, a whole slew of Baptists, Nazarenes. Don't say it too loud, but in assemblies of God. Lutheran, Mennonite, Mennonite brethren, as well as numerous independent and non-denominational congregations. When I worked for the Christian Medical and Dental Associations, I, I had all kinds of different people who were part of that fellowship from numerous denominations. And given all of those different churches that are out there, I take comfort knowing that the head of the church is Jesus Christ. This term, the church, is a reference to the universal body of Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew 16 that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And because Jesus Christ is the head of the church and he is building the church, you and I can rest assured that our Lord is neither going to permit his body to drift into utter moral and theological chaos, nor is he going to allow it to die of spiritual starvation and thirst. And I want to be kind in saying this, but the notion that the church vanished with the death of the apostles in the first century is absolute lunacy. Friend, the church is, is going to make it. Sometimes local churches don't, but the church universal of which Jesus Christ is the head, it's going to keep going, it's going to keep thriving, it's going to keep growing. Notice number eight. Jesus Christ is to be given preeminence because he's the firstborn from the dead. He says in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And what he simply means here is that Jesus Christ was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. When God the Father raised him from the dead and glorified and exalted him to the right hand of the majesty on height, he became the first fruits of that resurrection. And friend, his resurrection guarantees that all who are united to him in faith will be raised as well. And death doesn't have to be something that we're, we're scared spitless of. It's sad. It, it, it undeniably sad. I get emotional when I think about it. But it, doesn't, it, it need not be devastatingly crippling. Number nine. Jesus Christ is to be preeminent in all things because he is God. I love verse 19. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. 
Now, please, I want you to listen carefully. Don't be misled by that word dwell. Paul is not suggesting that there was a man named Jesus in whom deity or divinity resided. In other words, the fullness of deity didn't dwell in Jesus the way the Holy Spirit dwells in you and me. When God the Son became a human, the fullness of divine nature became flesh, yet without ceasing to be divine. The divine and human united in one person, Jesus Christ. And Paul literally says that all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in Christ. As you you break this verse down, please note that the Father is the subject of the verb. In other words, it was the Father's good pleasure that the fullness of divine nature dwells in Christ. And Paul is saying that not only is deity found extensively in Jesus, it is found exclusively in Jesus. He alone is God. It's not Buddha. It's not Muhammad or any other religious leader or philosophy or sage. It's Jesus and Jesus only. And finally, in verse 20, Jesus Christ is to be given preeminence in all things because he is our Savior. I love that. See what he says in verse 20? He says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Friend, because of the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, the unity, the harmony of the original creation has suffered a devastating rupture. And the beautiful, pristine beauty of the Garden of Eden has been horribly marred. And there's now in our world disharmony. God's marvelous handiwork has been disrupted. And we as God's creatures are at war with God. God's not at war with us. Please don't ever think that. We are at war with God. And there is because of the sin of humanity an adversarial relationship between man and his creator. And Paul says the only means by which we can be reconciled and redeemed and forgiven so that you and I can once again relate to God as father and friend is by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Please note that your reconciliation to God does not come about by your presence this morning in church. It's not going to come about by the money that you may have given your achievements in helping to improve our community, the company in which you work. It's not the people in this building that you associate with. As if somehow you can slip into heaven on the spiritual coattails of others. Friend, your only hope, my only hope, is the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying here that you and I have now been put into a position to be reconciled to God. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God has brought an entire rebellious creation back to the rule of his sovereign power, and he restored order 
from the cross. And we have to come to him now by faith. Now let me ask you in closing this simple question. And it's this. To what extent does your life reflect the preeminence of the risen and living Christ? Are the affairs of your daily existence so ordered that Jesus Christ is seen to be preeminent? When others look at you, how you behave, how you spend your money, how you use your talents, is it evident to all that Jesus Christ is the source and center of it all? Is he your treasure? Or is it found in the documents and deeds that are lying perhaps in a bank vault? Does he govern your life in such a way that all know that he is preeminent? He's numero uno in your life. When you relate to others, is it evident that Jesus Christ is in control? That's what Paul is saying here. Everything in your life and mine, both inside and outside the church, exists to make God look good. Again, I hope it wasn't too earth-shattering for some of you to hear, but you're not the center of the universe. God is. Jesus Christ is. And the sooner you wake up to that reality, the happier you will be. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this marvelous, marvelous passage of Scripture. Lord, we've just barely scratched the surface of it. And all ten of these points are ones that could and would be deserving of a sermon in and of themselves. But I pray that as a result of this morning's message, we would be encouraged to study and to dig deeply into your word and to come to understand these truths all the more. Father, what you've taught us this morning, I pray that by your spirit, you would give to us the grace and the strength to live out in the week that is ours. And I ask these things in the strong and powerful name of our resurrected Savior, who is the image of the invisible God the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people agreed and said, Amen.